Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Rob, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, it is great to have you on the show. Um, you know, we usually start by having our guests give us a little bit of a, an introduction to their backgrounds and how they got interested and involved in machine learning and AI. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? I'd be delighted to. My my introduction to AI was a little bit circular. Uh, so I was uh, working as a software developer for a number of years, uh, not really focused on artificial intelligence. And that had taken me to uh, work for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Um, I was working in, in refugee camps in Liberia um, while I was um, living in Sierra Leone. And there was one particular moment when I was in rural Liberia in a refugee camp there. And we were installing solar power systems at a, a clinic uh, supporting the camp. And we heard all these rumors about refugees coming over the border from Cote d'Ivoire. Um, but we didn't know whether there were 10 refugees or 10,000. Um, they're in the just the next valley, but we, we couldn't reach them. And ultimately, after, after a day of, of doing work at this clinic, we had to move on uh, without establishing uh, what condition uh, these refugees were in and how many there were. And what really uh, stood out for me was that I had five bars of, of cell phone reception at that time, and I'm lucky to get a full reception here in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and and so uh, there's no doubt that the um, uh, this refugee community also had cell phones with them. Uh, those cell phones were probably bouncing signals off the same tower as mine, but I had no way to connect with them. Mm. And even if we did, uh, we probably didn't share any languages, um, and the languages for which they did speak um, even basic things that we took for granted in AI 10 years ago, like spam filtering or search engines, uh, wouldn't have worked uh, well or at all uh, for their languages. Um, so there, there really just wasn't anything out there in, in terms of the supporting uh, technology, which would allow us to, to understand or, or translate uh, between the languages. And so it was clear to me at that time that uh, we really solved the problem of connecting the world, uh, but we, we had an imbalance in how we'll bring in services. And so I thought, well, anyone can be out you know, drilling solar panels into the roof of a clinic. That doesn't really require specialized skills. Uh, I'd studied artificial intelligence as an undergraduate. This was something I'd remained interested in. And so it was at that point that I decided that I, I really wanted to pursue a career in artificial intelligence and uh, make sure that we could bring it uh, to everybody in the world. And so that's what ultimately took me uh, back to graduate school. Uh, so I, I completed my, my PhD um, at Stanford, focused on how we can apply natural language processing to, to low-resource languages, uh, both in a health and disaster response context. Um, and since then, I've, I've worked uh, in a combination of uh, social impact uh, companies uh, and also you know, right through to the very large you know, Fortune 500 tech companies uh, like Amazon. And uh, that brought me to working at Figure 8 uh, just six months ago. Uh, where I'm really uh, excited to to be the new CTO here. Awesome. Uh, what did you do your PhD on? Sure. So I was looking at ways where we could go from very little initial training data um, to adaptive models in, in health and disaster response contexts, um, especially uh, looking at text messages. 
Uh, so when people send in text messages uh, to a hospital clinic in, in Malawi in a, a language they call Chichewa. Um, and then also looking at, at two um, uh, disaster response communication data sets in uh, Haiti and Pakistan from an earthquake in 2010 and floods later that year in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are actual uh, disasters that as a disaster response professional I worked in. Um, and so I was very much answering that question for myself. Okay, if we, we don't have any initial training data in these languages, um, what's the minimum amount of uh, human uh, interaction and, and labeling and categorization and mapping of these messages that is required until we can start uh, building out um, automated services um, uh, in these languages in a way that's language independent? Oh, interesting. And how far did you get? Did you... Uh... It clearly not a not a completely solved problem, but what did you what conclusion did you arrive at? The the broad conclusion was that you could do a lot of subword modeling, which would uh, mean that you could take one technique and and get uh, very similar accuracies uh, across these different languages. Uh, but one important observation was that uh, the techniques that worked in English uh, would not necessarily carry over to other languages. Uh, so linguistically, uh, English tends to be an outlier language. In that the the spelling is uh, extremely standardized, even even with like the U.S. and U.K. Uh, variants, um, uh, people are highly literate, uh, and we have very few affixes in in in, um, in English. So very few prefixes and suffixes compared to most languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what that means is that a, a lot of approaches to to natural language processing that that views a, a single word as a fundamental unit. Um, won't uh, won't apply, won't be very accurate um, in other languages. Uh, so, for example, in uh, the text messages between health workers in, in Chichawa, in 600 messages, there are more than 50 different spellings for the word patient due to um, variations in, in literacy, uh, but also just due to the, the large number of different suffixes and combinations of suffixes and prefixes um, that you get in that language. Um, and so... Um, uh, it was positive in, in terms of being able to find techniques that um, we've now deployed in um, disaster response situations globally. Um, but it also raised some questions about a lot of research in natural language processing that's just focused on English uh, mm-hmm. as to, to how much it, it really could make an impact um, if you were taking it to, you know, the, the 7,000 other languages in the world. Right, right. Yeah, and so is it your sense that the techniques broadly apply, but the tooling and the dictionaries and, and all of that, um, you know, haven't, uh, you know, need to be kind of ported over to these other languages or that there's, you know, a whole set of different research that has to happen to support languages with different structures. And part of the, the, the question is prompted by, at least on the, you know, with deep learning and, and neural networks, a lot of um, a lot of what I hear in the conversations that um, I'm thinking back to a specific interview where the, uh, I think this was uh, Shubhu Sengupta at uh, Baidu at the time was talking about how they did their, you know, English to Mandarin translation without any Mandarin speakers, you know, on staff at the time because, the deep neural networks were able to figure out the meaning and the ability to translate without having specific knowledge, structural knowledge of uh, really either of the languages. 
Um, so how do you think that that kind of translates to, you know, this issue that you're pointing out, the disparity in kind of tools and research uh, across languages? I, I think a lot of that, that research has been uh, really exciting in terms of being able to get up to speed a lot faster without resources like dictionaries or thesauruses or um, uh, other resources in those languages. Uh, so for, for most languages in the world, uh, we don't have a, a dictionary, certainly not um, an online dictionary that is easily available for, for natural language tools. Uh, for the majority of the world's languages, the, the only real scientific resource we have uh, you know, is probably a PhD written by a hippie linguist 40 years ago. <laughs> um, and so that doesn't, doesn't give you much of a, uh, much of a starting point. Uh, and so, um, uh, a lot of the techniques that, that I was looking at in, in my PhD, and then I've, I've seen taken, uh, much further in, in exciting ways in, in more recent deep learning approaches, um, has really focused on, uh, making no assumptions about the structure going in and still mm-hmm. being able to get these, um, really accurate results. And I, I think a lot of work in, in machine translation, um, has, has shown that, uh, the only caveat is that. Uh, a lot of the uh, neural-based techniques uh, typically require a lot more in the way of uh, labeled data. Right. Um, and so um, there are particular use cases where the first time you work in a language is, is following a sudden onset disaster. Then you're coming up against other problems of uh, you need some kind of model uh, to start working uh, with a very small amount of data. Um, and certainly you can't be waiting days, um, which is typical for, for training some of these large uh, machine-loaded models. Um, so it's certainly been net positive, um, uh, the move towards, uh, language independence, um, but it, uh, has been bringing up some, uh, some new problems associated with it. Yeah. So this experience on the research side and running into the need to, you know, have these labeled data sets in place in order to, uh, to really make progress and create the kind of tools that you're looking to create really set you up for, you know, I, I guess really deep and, and personal experience for the, you know, the need for, for organizations to be able to amass these uh, labeled training data sets. And you spent quite a bit of time working on that uh, from, you know, the time you spent at uh, the UNHCR and, and, and then in grad school. That's right. Yeah. I, I was a client of, of figure eights maybe five or six different times uh, before joining the company and uh, fully appreciated the the value in be, being able to build up training data sets for, for a number of different use cases. Uh, the first time I used figure eight was uh, during grad school in 2010. Uh, so at that point I was tasked with running their first step in a 911 service uh, following an earthquake in Haiti in January 2010. And uh, at the time, more than 100,000 people killed immediately. And while a lot of local services collapsed, as in buildings physically collapsed, housing emergency response services, most of the cell phone towers remained active. Um, and so working with a, a number of people, and including the U.S. State Department, uh, we set up a, a free phone number that anyone in Haiti could send a text message to. Um, so the, the lines were overloaded for, for phone calls, but text messages were still getting through. But it uh, showed this problem where everyone in Haiti, almost everyone in Haiti, uh, only spoke Haitian Creole, um, a language that is not not widely spoken. Uh, but everyone coming into Haiti only had English as a common language. Um, so I was tasked with uh, finding people who could uh, translate a, a text messages text message sent in Haitian Creole, uh, categorize that, uh, plot the location on a map based on the written location in the message. And so then you would have a structured English report with a longitude and latitude 
uh, stream back to the emergency responders. Uh, so people like the U.S. Coast Guard uh, who could go in and respond to those those actual messages. And that was my my first experience with with Figure Eight. This was something we launched in, in just forty eight hours, and then wow, uh, ulti- ultimately found. Uh, about 2,000 members of the Haitian diaspora uh, worldwide from across uh, 49 different countries. Um, and they were the workforce. Uh, so they were the ones who were um, reading the messages, translating them, categorizing, using their, their uh, local knowledge um, uh, to know where villages were, which uh, villages did not appear on, on any map, um, but they could at least know from the, the satellite view where they were. And then uh, they were able to do this for uh, 80,000 messages, um, so an incredibly large amount of, of data, like several novels worth of data um, in more or less real time in, in about four and a half minutes. Um, so that was a, a, a really important moment for me in, in realizing with distributed human computing how quickly you can uh, uh, structure data um, and how you, you can do this across a, a really large number of people. Um, and so it was certainly a a positive experience for uh, as much as it could be for the, the members of the Haitian diaspora to be able to help uh, their country from, from so far away. Obviously, I, I really appreciated being able to get that scale of information uh, to the disaster responders uh, on the ground as well. Um, and that's ended up also being something that, I, like I mentioned, I then studied for my PhD, looking at ways that we could extend that process with uh, natural language processing so that we could scale it uh, to even large data sets, um, larger than even very large numbers of humans uh, could process. Uh, and that's where a lot of my work has been since that time. It sounds like you uh, have been involved in a number of or were involved in a number of different uses of figure eight and as you uh as you described it distributed human computing uh prior to actually joining the company uh what were some of the others yeah so a use case that extends from from that one very closely is in epidemic tracking uh so uh, disease outbreaks are uh, uh, still the largest largest cause of mortality in the world and uh, no one is really tracking them all so you see a lot of movies where there's a war room and a big map of the world and like a heat map, it flares up every time there's an outbreak um, that only exists in the movies, unfortunately. And um, I, I think that the budget for those movies might be bigger than the actual budget for, for tracking um, <laughs> epidemics globally. And maybe the closest thing is the uh, Google, uh, the Google trends or Google predict. I forget the specific Go- thing, but Google flu pre- trends. Yeah. Flu trends. Right. Is it yeah, still and- only flu or is it, do they are they able to predict uh, a broader set of things now? They were able to predict a broader set of things. That uh, that group, which was in Google.org at the time, were actually one of the the, the funders of the uh, the company that I was working in, uh, doing epidemic tracking. So we're okay. working closely with them. And uh, this was uh, also a, a problem, which was uh, very linguistic. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, like I mentioned, English only makes up about five uh, percent of the world's conversations daily, um, right. and um, most of the uh, the world's diseases come in this thin band of the, the tropics where um, you uh, just correlates with um, ecological diversity. Um, so most of the world's ecological diversity is in the tropics. Therefore, most of the, um, the pathogens um, come from there too. Uh, that also uh, happens to correlate with uh, more than 90% of the world's linguistic diversity. So the, the first time that a, a language is mentioned, it's uh, really, really uh, unlikely to, to be in English um, or, or even any other um, a dominant language. 
And so we can go back in, in time and find examples of disease outbreaks well before um, they were finally identified by virologists and epidemiologists as being new strains of a potential uh, disease outbreak. Okay. So for, for swine flu, there were open reports in a, a local uh, Spanish language newspaper in, in Mexico about months before uh, it was identified as a new virus. In the case of uh, bird flu uh, coming out of uh, areas just outside of Hong Kong, uh, there were reports weeks before it was identified as um, as being a new uh, strain of the flu. Um, and so uh, this was another example using Crowdflower to collect information about potential disease outbreaks worldwide, uh, you know, make sure they were real fevers, not just in Bieber fevers, and then filter from millions of reports um, across uh, 15 different languages, um, using machine learning um, and a small number of uh, human experts as well. Um, so that the you know the the ten outbreaks each day that mattered were the only reports seen by the virologists out of the uh, the millions of potential uh, reports out there. I'm wondering if you're aware of any efforts to kind of bring together a, a network of you know data scientists and machine learning AI experts uh, to be able to help respond to uh, emergencies as they happen, like the. I'm not sure the specifics of how you got pulled into the well. You got pulled into the Haiti uh, situation based on the the company you were at. After, yeah, I forget how you say you got pulled <laughs> into the. It was uh, a connection uh, at the the U.S. State Department. So uh, at that time, I was doing work on uh, text messages between health workers in Africa, um, in the Chichero language of Malawi. And um, when it became clear that, that text messages were um, the only form of communication that was widely available in Haiti, I got dragged into it as really just as the only person um, working in this field. Um, so unfortunately, no one has, as far as I know, uh, tried to complete a PhD in, in text messages and low resource languages and, and health and disaster response uh, context since. So I was, um, <laughs> I remain the expert on that area, unfortunately, uh, by being the, the only person um, who has uh, looked into that kind of research. What's been very encouraging is that since that time, um, more than 10 years later, uh, a lot of large companies have been uh, moving in the direction of providing better tooling and support. So immediately b before I joined Figure 8, I was running product for natural language processing and translation at AWS, um, so Amazon's web services, Amazon AI. Uh, and so as the, the product lead there, I was able to have a, a lot of influence and um, found a, a lot of internal support uh, for making sure that uh, Amazon's first suite of native NLP technology on AWS is language independent um, with a, a clear roadmap to uh, supporting uh, as wide a variety of languages as possible. And I think that this is where we can see a lot of the, the biggest impact. Well, while I appreciated my uh, my time uh, working for the UN and, and uh, with charity organizations, uh, I found that it's uh, in many ways more important to um, make sure that you get this diversity in people's everyday tools. So the, the analogy I like to use is that if you go into an area after a disaster, the disaster response community are, are all driving uh, Toyota Land Rovers, right? Because um, a Toyota is a well-known car. It's been tested for millions of miles before you took it into a critical situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's plenty of people who, who know how to, to operate one or, or to repair one. And I, I take a similar view with uh, software. And so software, which is uh, specifically made for um, uh, for low resource health and 
disaster response environments uh, can tend to be buggy, uh, not well supported. And so while it's it's not as easy to immediately measure the impact, uh, I think um, uh, some of the greatest ways to improve the world have been in um, making sure that you know the most popular cloud platform, AWS, has a, has a view to be language independent um, so that people can build out these these tools in a well-known environment. Uh, along with other work that I've I've done uh, both here at Figure Eight and and previously, uh, so for example, working with uh, a lot of of manufacturers of uh, cell phones uh, to ensure that um, they get as much linguistic diversity as possible in their speech recognition systems. I think a lot of people uh, associate uh, Figure Eight slash Crowdflower uh, with this idea of you know human in the loop and. I think one of the the themes that has been part of our conversation around uh, machine learning and AI is this idea that, you know, often people will put it as, you know, AI versus humans. Uh, and there's been, uh, you know, I think a consistent and, and growing uh, set of voices that it's not, you know, it's not AI versus humans or AI or humans, it's AI and humans. You know, how has your right. perspective on that evolved since, you know, doing this early work? And um, I imagine you get involved in a lot of, uh, you know, customer activity at, at Figure Eight. Um, what's your take on the importance of, you know, humans uh, in delivering machine learning and AI products and, and solutions? Uh, and how do you see that evolving over time? Yeah, I think one of the most important problems we're solving in technology right now is working out what it looks like for humans and AI to work together on problems. Uh, this is something that we're seeing a across our, our client base, whether it's uh, a self-driving car company um, looking to get the, the right human feedback on the hours and hours of, um, of videos uh, taken from their, uh, their cars collecting data. Uh, you know, right through to, to medical imaging, what's the right way for a, a predictive service um, uh, to identify, uh, for example, breast cancer cells um, to uh, either replace or advise a doctor, you know, right through to the use cases uh, that I've been looking at in text where you're uh, letting humans make a decision uh, based on large volumes of reports and the, uh, the AI component is prioritizing that for a person. Uh, and so I think we're really just scratching the surface right now in the ways in which uh, AI and humans can work together. And um, there's a lot more exciting work. When you say more exciting work, is that work you know, to be identified or work that you know, is being done in different places that you're specifically aware of? Yeah, I mean, the, we're doing a lot of exciting work right now with, with companies. So, for example, uh, imagine you're a self-driving car company and you're looking to uh, identify pedestrians. Um, uh, on the street. So mm -hmm. um, if you don't have any AI assistance in, in creating your training data, uh, then it's going to be a pretty tedious experience. Um, so a person might have to draw a manually draw a bounding box around every single pedestrian and every frame in, in hours and hours of video. Right. Uh, and that, that's incredibly tedious. And uh, most of that video is, is going to be empty. It's going to be um, uh, you know, people driving down, down freeways and, and highways. And so uh, there's uh, at least four different ways where we're commonly introducing AI into into that human annotation process at the moment. Uh, so the first is is selecting you know what's interesting. So what's the car at the intersection um, and having some highway driving, but but not having that be ninety percent of what the the car is is learning. 
And then uh, with those those bounty boxes around the pedestrians, to what extent can we pre-populate uh, using the machine learning model and have the humans um, uh, edit, accept, or, or reject uh, those boxes? And then uh, automatically track those objects between frames, again, still allowing humans to um, edit, accept, and reject. Uh, and then finally, um, taking advantage of a, a lot of uh, Craftlast quality control methods, how can we give the same task to multiple people uh, to make sure that they agree with each other and, and, and errors don't propagate? Uh, and then combine um, those different, uh, those different, maybe slightly overlapping boxes in the most optimal way. Uh, and so every piece of that step, uh, selecting the right data, um, using predictive bounding boxes rather than having somebody manually draw them, uh, semi-automating the tracking in videos, um, and then combining different human judgments in, into one final judgment for the training data. All four of those steps use machine learning in, in different ways. Um, so I think that's that's already incredibly exciting in, in terms of the the ways that, that humans and machines are, are collaborating. But at the end of the day, that's just putting a box around objects. I, I think that the kinds of interfaces um, that we can develop um, are you know, not even at R&D stage yet. I, I think this is going to be some of the most exciting advances at the intersection of um, human-computer interaction and AI in the, the coming decades. And do you have any ideas around what those might look like? Or have you? Uh, do you know of places where folks are working on that kind of thing that you can point us to? You know what? There's no one really working on this um, uh, any more than, than we are right now. We're, we're building <laughs> this out with, with a lot of our customers. And uh, I'm just starting to see um, some research papers coming out of AI labs and human computer interaction labs. Um, but it's it's really new. Um, there's you know, not even uh, conferences in, in academia dedicated to, to the intersection of human computer interaction and artificial intelligence at the moment. Yeah. Um, so th- this this is really nascent and, and I think uh, incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah, you know, it's something that I've been kind of mentioning and and asking uh, about and for on the podcast probably for over a year now. I think you know, there's a book that's kind of classic in the design uh the design field, the design of everyday things. I forget the name of the author. Um but uh you know, we've built up a huge body of, you know, expertise and uh you know, approaches, methodologies, senses for what works and what doesn't around, you know, design uh, minus intelligence, you know, just kind of design yeah. of stuff. Um, and it, it, you know, strikes me that designing with intelligence, designing for devices and systems uh, that have intelligence uh, is its own field. And we need to have people that are, you know, thinking about this stuff and, and researching it and kind of pushing the kind of the, the frontiers of, uh, of our knowledge about it. I, I think so too. And, and when you add in the, the complexity of people approaching technology on very different devices in, in very different cultures, speaking very different languages, uh, there is uh, so much out there that, uh, we are, we are yet to even look at from an academic uh, viewpoint, um, uh, that I, I, I can't wait to see more people uh, get involved with. Yeah, so when, when you look at these, the four ways that you're looking to evolve the kind of the human uh, AI interface from a training perspective, can you talk a little bit about what some of the you know, most interesting technical challenges have been and how you've approached them? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. 
some of them are things which we we haven't seen at all before, which was which is somewhat surprising. So, uh, for example, combining um, the uh, different people's uh, judgments. So taking those, say, three different bounding boxes around a pedestrian, which don't quite overlap with each other from three different uh, workers, and making sure that that final bounding box, which would then become the training data, is the correct one. Okay. Uh, so it, turn, it turns out there's no simple heuristic. You you can't take the average of those boxes. You can't take the the weighted average given the uh, the past accuracy of, of each of those workers on the task. Um, but you can uh, make this a machine learning task in itself, where you have the the past accuracy of those people. You have their their three boxes, and you have the image itself, and you can give all of that to a machine learning algorithm. And so uh, a fun way that um, one of our scientists set up here was to, to make this uh, its own layer. Uh, so in a typical image, you have uh, you know, RGB, red, green, and blue layers, um, because that's how the image is encoded. Um, and then we treat uh, the human, uh, the various human identifications of, of boxes as additional layers. Um, and so this was, a, I think, a, a really neat solution to think about new channels of information um, uh, some human generated, uh, uh, some computer generated, um, and then allowing the machine learning algorithm to, to u- find the right combination of information uh, to produce the most accurate result. Hmm. Does it work at all to not think of these boxes as, uh, as bounding boxes per se, but more like probability densities? That's exactly what we do. <laughs> 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 that's a that's a good suggestion. Yeah, we <laughs> we we treat them as probability densities, where those probabilities are, are taken from their their past accuracy. So with um uh, with the the figure eight platform, we we have a lot of quality control measures, uh, such as making sure that people pass quizzes before they can take a task, um, plus embedding the uh, known answers into tasks, uh, so that we can track someone's accuracy over time and and remove them from a task if they're they're not accurate. And what this means is that we have um, fairly accurate probabilities given um, every single person's past work. Uh, so someone might be 70% accurate, someone might be 95. Uh, and so then each of those probably distributions um, can be represented. Um, and then uh, the machine learning uh, can figure out exactly what the, the right densities or, or thresholds are uh, to combine with the, the image data uh, to produce that final result. Interesting. Interesting. Anything else uh, come to mind in terms of interesting challenges in this area? Well, like I said, I, I think we're just uh, scratching the surface. And one of the the things we lean, lean on really heavily is uh, transfer learning. So when we're helping someone do predictive bounding boxes or, or create their final model, we're able to do this by extending a, a model that's uh, built on millions of, of previous images that, um, that Figure 8 has access to. Uh, and that gets a very high degree of accuracy, even when someone has relatively little training data to begin with. I think what's really interesting at the moment is that transfer learning has been incredibly effective with with images, um, but not so much with with language. So you can take a a model learned on everyday objects, and then if you start applying that with transfer learning to medical imaging, you, you get a really large head start in, in mm-hmm. terms of accuracy from from uh, small amounts of training data. But if you take things which seem almost identical, so you take you know, sentiment analysis on Twitter content in English, right. and then you try to apply that to sentiment analysis on Yelp reviews in English, 
um, then that transfer learning is giving you a couple of percent increase in accuracy only. Um, certainly not enough to, to make a big difference from a business standpoint. Hmm. Uh, and so, um, why do you think I mean, that is? Well, I think uh, linguistically, it's just because language is, is so complex and exciting. Uh, the the ways in which we will talk about food or for Yelp review are just really different to the way mm-hmm. we'll talk about whatever it is people are complaining about on on Twitter. And uh, those stylistics are, are enough that it's just in um, uh, it's not really the same signal at all. Yeah. Whereas with um, whether it's uh, medical imaging or everyday objects or, or satellite imagery. Um, uh, a 2D object with uh, you know just uh, three layers of colors um, uh, has more similarities. There, there are you know 3D objects represented in two dimensions. There are colors. Uh, there are clear boundaries between objects. Hmm. Um, and so, as as a as a linguist, I find it fascinating. <laughs> as a machine learning um, practitioner, I find it frustrating. <laughs> I know a lot of smart people are, are working on this problem. I, I think some of the um, the uh, early results in what's been called uh, zero-shot machine learning, uh, machine translation, um, are good uh, good early examples of this applying to language. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can get to a point where we have these uh, uh, models of uh, different language tasks, uh, which can um, make adapted new tasks much, much more efficient. Yeah, it, it, this keeps bringing me back to the, I guess, the earlier comment or a related comment to the earlier one I made that it's I think it's easy to look at some of the results we see around, um, you know, machine translation and, and uh, deep neural net language modeling. And I forget the person who made the quote, but there's a famous quote about, you know, the the, for every linguist I fire or every linguist I get rid of, my uh, accuracy <laughs> of my models increases. Talking about you know the advances we've made in statistical language modeling, it, it, it's interesting in this conversation to hear you you know reinforce the importance of the underlying you know linguistics and and the language modeling and even within English, um, you know to the extent that even within English, you know. Uh, Examples from, you know, one type of communication, Twitter and another type of communication, Yelp reviews, you know, produce such different results that you can't really transfer easily between the two. Yeah. And I, I think we're, we're seeing an, an increase in, um, in the importance of, of linguistics. Um, I, I remember that adage. I, I think it was every time a linguist quits. I'm not sure if it was them being fired. <laughs> the original quote, or, or maybe it was. Um, and... Uh, that, that's been an amazing change in terms of we really don't as much um, need someone with that linguistic knowledge to manually say what the features are. Like this is a word boundary, you know, this is a proper noun, et cetera. Um, the uh, deep learning models can um, can take care of a lot of that for us. Um, and, and that's certainly also been a research focus for a while. So in my own research, I was trying to abstract away from specific linguistic knowledge and, and resources so we could scale. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about some use cases here at the moment where, uh, while we don't need the linguist to extract the features, we, we get deep learning to do that for us. Um, linguistic intuitions about how to set up a task, uh, can really, really help. Mm. Uh, so for, for one current use case, we're working with a, um, a large online retailer, um, that also, um, has a, a in-home device. And they, they have this problem where on their online store, their titles are often like 40 or 50 words long. 
because the people putting products up there assume that a 50-word title is going to have better search engine optimization. However, that's a terrible experience if you're speaking to a device in your home and you have to listen to all 40 words in, in that title uh, to do audio shopping. Mm-hmm. And so they need to need to shorten those titles. And so uh, making this purely a, a summarization task with sequence to sequence models and deep learning really isn't producing very good results. Um, the, the shortened titles aren't, aren't very natural. They don't look very good at all. Um, but applying just a little bit of linguistic knowledge, we can see which are the, the important entities within a title. Um, so the name of the brand, the, the size, the, the color, um, the, the function. And treat this as a task where we identify those entities and then uh, recompile that short title from those entities. And so we were going from something about 50% of human level accuracy uh, to now something at 90% of human level accuracy just because we, we had a, a smart linguist kind of analyze the problem and uh, not have to hard code any features, uh, but they just knew how to cast this uh, problem as a, a sequence to sequence problem for identifying entities rather than a sequence to sequence problem for uh, for summarizing text. Uh, so I think this is uh, uh, one example of uh, where domain expertise is coming back into machine learning. Mm. Uh, so a quick note, uh, because I'm sure at least someone out there listening is gonna gonna be wondering who about this quote. Uh, the quote is uh, from Frederick Jelenic, uh, and it's every time I fire a linguist, the performance of the speech recognizer goes up. Um, <laughs> so you are much more gracious than uh, Frederick Jelenic in your treatment of the linguists. But I, I think what's interesting here is the. You know, kind of going back to this broader question of, you know, you know, humans and AI, humans or AI uh, and human in the loop, there are, you know, there are multiple layers where, you know, AI and humans, uh, you know, interface. There's the, you know, the use, the user uh, and the AI is getting uh, in many cases, you know, training data from the user, the user has to use the AI in some, uh, cases the user is configuring things that have AI in them and those have peculiarities. And so there's, um, kind of work that needs to happen there about that user experience, uh, element. Uh, there's the, the folks that are creating training data and you've talked about some of the work that you're doing in, uh, applying, uh, machine learning to that interface between the, you know, the, the organization, uh, or entity that's collecting training data and humans that are, that are helping to produce that training data, helping to, to label. Uh, and then, you know, we've talked about, you know, just just now, and and certainly plenty of times on this podcast, the role of uh, domain expertise uh, in you know broadly speaking, data science teams that are building out uh, machine learning. Uh, are there you know? So those are kind of three places that humans are kind of in this loop. Are there are there others that uh, that don't fall into those three? So this, um, I'm enumerating those three. So that would be the uh, the end users, the the experts, and crowdsource workers doing labeling. Those are three. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering if you if you guys have a model for thinking about, or if you have a model for thinking about, uh, kind of the roles, the varying roles that humans play in working with 
AI and, and does that model, you know, tell you anything interesting? Yeah, I, I think we, we're seeing more and more a tiered model of humans creating training data. So uh, historically, uh, when Figure 8 was called Crowdflower, it was because initially uh, most of the, the work done on the platform was, was crowdsourced. And uh, Crowdflower still runs at the largest marketplace for, for crowdsourced um, workers for, for training data. So we have hundreds of thousands of people in more than 150 countries working on the platform. Uh, however, that's becoming a, a smaller and smaller part. So uh, about a third of, of people using the Figure 8 software today are using their own internal experts. So they have domain expertise, whether that's in medical or, or financial domain or um, simply sensitive data uh, that they don't want to farm out. And while they recognize the importance of creating training data, um, they they don't see this as a problem that they want to outsource, or at least not for the uh, the human component. Um, certainly they'll, they'll license our software still. And then we uh, also have a, a very large number of, uh, maybe about another third uh, of workforce who are, uh, what we call an NDA crowd. Uh, so these are people who work in a center. Uh, they're often guaranteed a an hourly salary, uh, so they have job security, um, and they're everywhere. So that could be in New Orleans or, or the Philippines or in India. Uh, we're just starting to to work with uh, with UN org, helping to uh, provide employment for uh, refugees um, in um, in Europe as well. And the advantage of having groups of people in a room means that one, you know, their identity, they can sign an NDA and, and see more sensitive data. And also they can be trained up a lot more. Um, so they, they have the, the ability to, to understand more complicated um, uh, data concepts. And so I find this to be really, really interesting. So for example, there is a, um, a center employing only women um, uh, in areas of India where uh, people normally don't get uh, to take part in the information economy. Uh, and uh, they're doing a lot of the work for us for self-driving car companies, um, which means that people whose other job opportunities would really only be um, in, in agriculture or in, in road work uh, have learned what every single street sign means across you know, North America, Japan, Europe, um, and can very quickly annotate all of those. Um, uh, so I find it to be in, uh, fascinating because certainly I don't know how to do these tasks. Um, but they're able to uh, to take on this work, become domain experts, uh, and then um, contribute uh, to, to the training data worldwide. I think this is often very overlooked. So I, I read recently that um, uh, someone made an estimate that there were 10,000 AI professionals worldwide. Uh, and so last year, we had 60,000 people from Venezuela alone creating training data on, on our platform um, and became very, really, really proficient at it. Uh, and so I, I think... Um, elevating um, uh, people who are creating training data, whether that's a crowdsourced worker or an expert analyst uh, within a company, uh, is going to become uh, something that we'll see more of in, in the future as, as people recognize the, the human input component. And do you have a perspective on the, uh, the kind of jobs and broader economic uh, implications of that? Yeah, I, I think ultimately it'll find its way to uh, to the end users, and, and a lot of the software will be making sure that the, the that they can get that implicit feedback for the training data from the end user. And so we've we've seen this already in search engines. Um, we we do power a, a lot of search engines for for various companies at Crowdflower, but there are some like very large commercial search engines that really don't need a lot of extra training data because they get it explicitly when when you type something into Google, whichever link you click on gives them that feedback as to um, how they should. 
um, optimize their, their search engine for for future similar uh, search terms. Um, and so that's the piece that's that's more missing at the moment. Um, and this is where I, where I see, especially for for areas like the medical domain. Um, so there's huge debates at the moment about whether AI are, are going to replace uh, physicians. Um, and I, I understand that people are worried about their job, but whenever I hear these arguments, I'm, I'm like, well, before I moved here to the U.S., the, the village I lived in in Sierra Leone had uh, one doctor for every 100,000 people. Mm. And uh, a little more than a decade later, it still has one doctor for every 100,000 people. And and that's going to be true in 10 years' time. Uh, that's not really going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the social economics of that nation are not going to change that quickly. Um, so I would love to be in a world where uh, physicians were sitting idle because AI had solved healthcare. <laughs> but um, <laughs> But I, I really don't think that's going to happen. Um, what will happen is that uh, that that one physician will be able to scale what they are capable of of working on uh, as they are assisted by AI, and because they are going to in- encounter uh, diseases or, or combinations of, of infections which are very specific to their environment, um, we want to make sure that we're capturing um, uh, the data in in a in a safe but meaningful way at that point of care um, so that, that AI that they're using can become optimized to the local population that they're serving. Awesome. Uh, I think we are about out of time. Is there anything that you'd like to add to close us out? Yeah. So I, I would love to, to invite um, anyone who is uh, in the Bay Area to our Train AI conference, um, which is in um, about one month. We'll, we'll add a link to it. And uh, we have a, a fun keynote speaker there. So Gary Kasparov, um, probably the, the most famous person to, to fight AI and lose, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, will be talking about his experience. And um, I love how uh, positive he's become. So he is now one of the biggest advocates for uh, chess that combines AI and humans, um, showing that um, the best chess players are combinations of, of humans and machines, uh, which will consistently beat both the best machines and the best humans even today. Um, uh, so we're looking forward to um, hearing about uh, his experience um, and then having a, a larger number of um, uh, industry practices of, of machine learning um, also sharing uh, their experiences in, in combining human and machine intelligence. Awesome. And I will be there as well. And any listeners that are interested in attending can use the code TWIML to receive 30% off of registration. All right. Uh, Well, Rob, it was great chatting with you. Um, uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. Sam, it was my pleasure. Thanks for speaking with me today. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Rob or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 125. If you're new to the podcast and like what you hear, or you're a veteran listener and haven't already done so, please head on over to your podcast app of choice and leave us your most gracious rating and review. It helps new listeners find us, which helps us grow. Thanks in advance. Thanks again to Rob and to Figure 8 for sponsoring this show. And of course, make sure you head on over to figure-8.com slash train-ai to learn more about the Train AI conference. And be sure to use code TWIMLAI for 30% off of your registration. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.